Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am, again, your host, Kid Kong, and today we're going to be talking about a movie that I personally, for the longest time, had a love-hate relationship with. The 1998 live-action, big-screen remake of the original 1960s TV series, Lost in Space. It was directed by Stephen Hopkins, who was initially a second-unit director on Highlander, but is probably best known for directing Nightmare on Elm Street 5, uh, Predator 2, and Ghost of the Darkness, while he's also directed the first two seasons of 24, many of the episodes in that. A producer and actually also a writer, Akiva Goldsman, this man has had an extensive career as a producer and a writer, and he's also been a director as well. As a producer, he's probably best known for, like, I Am Legend and The Dark Tower. However, as a writer, he wrote Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Practical Magic, A Beautiful Mind, A Time to Kill, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code. I mean, he again, he's had a very extensive career. As I said earlier, this is based on an original TV series in the 1960s, which in turn was actually taken inspiration from the 1812 novel, The Swiss Family Robinson. Which, I mean, if you think about the fact that the family's last name is Robinson and they're lost in space, it, it, it makes sense. It just It's one of those things that unless somebody says it to you, you're really not going to put that together on your own. It was released initially on April 3rd, 1998. Uh, give you a brief synopsis of this. Basically, the family, the world that this is in takes place in the year 2058 and between pollution, ozone, and everything else, the planet's not going to be able to sustain human life within two to three decades. So the uh, family, headed, of course, by John Robinson, as, long, as well as his wife, two daughters, and son, are going to man the first mission to a new planet they've discovered called Alpha Prime, which supposedly will be able to sustain human life. And they're going to go there, and they're going to begin construction on a, essentially a warp device which will allow instantaneous travel from earth to alpha prime their pilot is major don west who in this movie is one of the few movie roles this actor has ever had and i'll get a little bit more to that um things happen it gets sabotaged by dr smith which if you've read or if, i'm sorry if you've seen the original series you know who dr smith is if not no worry we're gonna get there a little bit only to himself be betrayed by the Global Sedition, which is a, a group of mutants and people that don't want to leave the planet. And he is left on the ship. And, of course, then he has to wake up the family to stop the robot from destroying the ship so that he doesn't die as well. And they ultimately become lost in space when they have to warp through the sun. Which is, All this takes place in the first 20 minutes or so of the movie. So, it, uh, it didn't... It wasn't received well by critics. Mostly in the United States, they got really, really bad reviews. Critics over in the UK were a little bit kinder to it. But that's like saying that instead of that sandwich tastes like crap, that sandwich is okay. You know what I mean? So it's, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Getting into the cast on this, of course, as I said, John Robinson, the father. Now, both John Robinson and Judy Robinson as well as his wife, Maureen Robinson. They're all doctors. So they've, they've been referred to as doctor throughout the TV series and a couple times in the movie. I wanted to just go ahead and get out of the way that they are called doctors right now. That way I'm not having to say doctor this or doctor that. 
John Robinson was played by William Hurt, who was known for Altered States, Dark City, um, AI, Artificial Intelligence, A History of Violence, which he was nominated for awards for, Kiss of the Spider Woman, which he actually won an Academy Award for. Most of you are going to know him now as General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The part of Maureen Robinson, who is his wife, is played by Mimi Rogers, who, while she was known, she was in the movie The Rapture, uh, she appeared in the first Austin Powers movie, Ginger Snaps. She, she mostly bounced between television and movies, where her TV roles include roles on X-Files, Two and a Half Men, Wilfred, Mad Men, you know, things like that. Judy Robinson, the oldest daughter, who again was also a doctor in this film, played by Heather Graham. Heather Graham, of course, rose prominence from Boogie Nights, which is one of my absolute all-time favorite films. But she's also appeared in Swingers, From Hell, Horns, Austin Powers 2, The Spy Who Shagged Me, and of course, The Hangover. The youngest daughter was played by Lacey Chabert. That would be Penny Robinson. Now, Lacey Chabert was the original voice of Meg Griffin in the first season of Family Guy. But as far as films go, I mean, she was in Mean Girls, Not Another Teen Movie, Dirty Deeds, Black Christmas, Daddy Daycare. And of late, she's been in 18 Hallmark films. The young Will Robinson was played by Jack Johnson, who, while he's had a couple of movie roles other than this, he really didn't go very far from this film as far as his career goes as an actor. Uh, he was in Tie the Binds, Love Affair. He's also in an episode of Jeeves and Wooster, which is an excellent series with Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. If you ever get a chance, I implore you to give this one a shot. Uh, the older version of Will Robinson. Now, I do need to preface that by saying that there is time travel involved in this, which when you have something that involves space, with time being relative, of course, time travel becomes a possibility. The older Will Robinson is played by Jared Harris, who, while he also has extensive theater work, uh, you're probably going to recognize him from Mr. Deeds. Uh, he was in Lincoln, Allied, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Last of the Mohicans, Natural Born Killers, uh, the remake for Poltergeist. And he's actually going to be in Morbius, which is the... MCU, I, I don't know if it's going to be MCU, actually, it might just be Sony. Uh, Spider-Man character who's getting his own film. He's going to be in that, which comes out in 2022. Now, as far as television goes, I mean, he was in... Oh, Mad Men, where he played Lane Price. He played King George VI in The Crown. And he was also in Chernobyl, an excellent HBO series on the Chernobyl disaster. And, of course, Major Don West was played by Matt LeBlanc who the only film I can think of that you're really going to recognize him from might be Charlie's Angels. He's briefly in that. Of course, Matt LeBlanc is Joey on Friends. He also was in, you know, the spinoff series Joey, which was absolutely awful. <laughs> he plays a fictionalized version of himself in the TV series Episodes. Uh, he hosted Top Gear. He was in the and he's most recently in the series Man with a Plan as Adam Burns. And finally, as far as the main characters go, you got Dr. Zachary Smith, Dr. Smith, played by Gary Oldman. What can I say about Gary Oldman that can't be said by somebody else? That's a man who I fully plan on doing an actor showcase on at some point because he is an absolute master. He was in JFK, where he played Lee Harvey Oswald. Of course, Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he played the title character of Dracula. He's in True Romance, The Fifth Element, Leon the Professional. Uh, he played Sirius Black in the Harry Potter films. 
He was in the Dark Knight trilogy as Commissioner Gordon. He was in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Lawless, The Book of Eli, Darkest Hour. I could go on. I could, if I sat here and listed the movies that this man was in, I would be here all day. He did win an Academy Award for Darkest Hour where he plays Winston Churchill, though. The Robot was voiced by Dick Tuffle, who died in 2012. That man was the original voice of the robot in the 1960s TV series. I mean, he's he he bounced between radio. He did some voiceovers for commercials. Uh, the only other place I can remember his voice from, he narrated episodes of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and I saw that on replays when I was a kid. You've also got Lieutenant Jeb Walker, who was played by Lenny James, who is probably best known as the character of Morgan in both The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. But he was also in Snatch, Sahara, Columbiana, and most recently in Blade Runner 2049. Now, this film, they actually got a lot of the original actors to cameo in this movie. Uh, for example, the general that assigns... Matt LeBlanc's Major Don West, the role of piloting their ship, was played by Mark Goddard, who was actually the original Major Don West in the TV series. Now, the man was predominantly a TV actor. He's got dozens upon dozens of credits for episodes here and there. Um, Will Robinson's principal, who is involved in a video, like a hologram conference call, uh, was played by June Lockhart, who played Maureen in the original series. That's the mother. Uh, she began acting all the way back in 1938, where she played Belinda Cratchit in A Christmas Carol. She had a very, very long career, and is still alive. At least she's 95 years old now. Reporters number one and two, which, you know, take your pick on that, were played by the original Penny and the original Judy, Angela Cartwright and Marta Kristen, respectively. And there was another one where you see a businessman who has a few uh, speaking moments in that. It's played by Edward Fox. He was in Day of the Jackal, A Bridge Too Far, and Force 10 from Navarone. Now, he was in Force 10 from Navarone with Robert Shaw and Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, of course, is Han Solo. Robert Shaw played Quint on Jaws and had an unfortunately cut short career from that. But I will one day get to that. This film had a lot of problems in production that ultimately affected how the movie was received by people who went and saw it. Uh, New Line Cinema had an option in the mid-90s to buy the rights for the series to make a film out of it. And the executive at New Line that wanted to do so actually went to college with Akiva Goldsman, who was, as I said a little bit earlier, the man who ended up being the producer but also involved in the writing the screenplay for it. He was a fan of the original series and wanted to produce because he wanted to be able to like he wanted to write don't get me wrong but he also wanted to produce so that he could have more of a credit attached and he could do more to it he was coming off of the joel schumacher batman films and while those films were not the best received um they were still planning on doing a fifth one and they wanted him to return for that however he not only had grown tired of doing campy stuff by that point he also really didn't want to imitate the original campy style of the TV series with this when he jumped on this. So he, 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 he decided to make it more of a darker tone, more realistic tone in his mind at least. And he made the family more dysfunctional rather than just 
golly gee whiz getting along the whole time, which to him made it a lot more relatable, he felt, to families that would go and see the movie. This film was part of a wave in the 90s of movies that came based off a TV series from the 70s and even the 60s, like The Addams Family, The Flintstones, Mission Impossible, uh, My Favorite Martian, which was based on a TV series as well. It was it was par for the course. Wild Wild West is another one. You know, when the movie got initially brought to Stephen Hopkins, the director, he was actually in post-production on Ghosts in the Darkness. And when he was initially offered, he wasn't sure if he wanted to do it or not. Um, and it's not because he didn't want to work. It was that he wasn't sure he wanted to do another big movie, something that he would be attached to and known for. He wanted to try and focus on more indie stuff or smaller stuff. However, when he was told he would be allowed to take more of a darker, serious tone with the film, that it wasn't going to be based on the as far as he could see, the campy design of the first, the TV series rather, at that point he, he agreed and jumped on. New Line Cinema was extremely happy to have him back because Nightmare on Elm Street 5, while it was not the most well-received by critics, from a storyline perspective, from storyboarding and everything else, it went really well and they really liked it. He brought with him the costume designer and set designer from Hook to help out with some of the sets and whatnot, which that's a really, that's a movie that doesn't get the love it deserves either. In fact, that movie was initially harshly negatively reviewed, but I feel it probably holds up a little, <laughs> a little better than this one. Anyway, I'm starting to get off tangent. Um, William Hurt was actually the first one cast. He signed on after reading the script and wanting to work with Stephen Hopkins to begin with. Gary Oldman was the first choice for Dr. Smith. However, they weren't sure if they were going to be able to get the man or not because he was coming off of the fifth element and Leon the Professional, and they were concerned that you know he might be in a little bit higher demand. So the, the role that they did from the way he was written and everything else, they made sure that other actors could do it, and their second and third choices were Tim Robbins, who of course is known as Andy Dufresne from The Shawshank Redemption, and Kenneth Branagh, who at this point had been Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with Robert De Niro. Uh, he was in the Harry Potter series as Professor Lockhart, and he's also, as of late, directed Thor. You know, he liked the script, Gary Oldman did. The thing that he was worried about was the five-month shooting schedule. You know, he, he he ultimately went with it because he felt that this is something that he could really get into. He was told that he didn't have to portray the campy, oh, the pain of it old character that was the original Dr. Smith. He, he was allowed to explore it, not only just explore the villainy of the character, but he also was able to have fun with the character and fun with the role. And it holds up to me. He's To me, that he's the best performance out of the entire movie, bar none. So I was I was pleased with him, and I'm glad that he got to have the input that he did. Um, Matt LeBlanc was not the first choice for Major Don West. Sean Patrick Flannery was. Sean Patrick Flannery went through a couple of different things before ultimately they decided to replace him. Like uh, it was a couple of weeks before pre-production was scheduled to begin, so they were they were cutting it kind of close with that. The problem with casting Matt LeBlanc in this was because not only was he filming this movie, 
He was also filming Friends. The movie was filmed in the UK. Friends was filmed in the States. He was flying back and forth from the UK to the States on a private jet to try and get both things in to film both of them. And it's because of that that there are a couple of scenes where, like there's a scene where he has like an armored helmet come down over his face that as a kid seeing that in the trailers, I was blown away and loved that. I was like, that's freaking cool. That was done so that if he was not going to be able to be there, they could use a double to film those scenes and he could just voice his role in later. Um, uh, same thing with a couple of scenes where you see him flying from behind. But for the most part, they were able to make it work. He did most of it, including the stuff where he was wearing the helmet. So that 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 was... They were able to get that with pretty easily. Uh, Mimi Rogers signed on pretty early to play Maureen. She loved the idea of getting to work with William Hurt. Lacey Chabert signed on immediately. <laughs> Jack Johnson didn't really have a whole lot of credits to his name, so his family wanting him to get more to it. You know, had him audition and he was ultimately cast. Heather Graham was signed pretty easy and early enough in the development of this. She was actually dating Stephen Hopkins at the time. I have no idea if that had anything to do with it or not. She was coming off of a couple of successful movies in the earlier 90s. So I'm going to go ahead and say that that was just a bonus that she happened to be dating the director at the time. <laughs> uh Jared Harris was cast as the older Will Robinson. Now, the problem with Jared Harris being cast as the older Will Robinson was that when he got to the premiere, it was watching the movie at the premiere that he discovered he'd been dubbed over. I don't know why they chose to dub over him. Jared Harris is an amazing actor. Um, it could be because they maybe they felt that his attempt at an at an English accent or American accent rather didn't hold up as well as they would have liked. Personally, I thought the way he looked, he looked a lot like William Hurt's character. They did a very good job with from the facial hair to the cadence of the way he would uh, carry himself when he walked around. You could, I mean, I could see his father in that, but for whatever reason, they didn't. I have checked. You know, I've, I've gone through IMDb. I've gone through a couple other websites. You know, I've read articles that were in magazines. The closest thing I can find as to who I think voiced over his role, there was an ADR extra voice listed in the credits named Lex Lang. That's all I can find on that. So I believe that's who voiced him. I'm not 100% sure. I have... I've looked at that periodically over the past few months trying to figure that one out just for my own peace of mind because as a kid, you don't really notice that he's been dubbed over. As an adult, having seen him in enough things, it's very clear that that is not Jared Harris's voice. So, again, we got to have the cameos in this film, which, you know, most of them signed on to do them easy enough. They were very pleased to do them. Um... The only issues that I found as far as cameos, like the original John Robinson had passed away in 1989. So he was gone. Uh, June Lockhart had no problem. Mark Kristen had no problem. Angela Carter had no problem. Mark Goddard had no problem. They went to 
the original man who voiced or who was rather Doctor Smith, and that would be uh, God. I'm drawing a blank on his name. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, the thing is, he turned it down. Jonathan Harris. There we go. He turned it down because he said that you know I will not be in a movie playing a cameo when the character that I played for years is in the same movie. He either wanted to be Dr. Smith or he didn't want to be in it at all. And they did not want him for Dr. Smith. They did. They felt that it would have totally taken away from the tone. So they ended up not doing it. Now I have a Facebook page for the podcast. I was mistaken on one thing. Bill Mummy, who played the original Will Robinson, actually did not have a scheduling conflict. That was what was initially reported as to why he couldn't do it. He himself has stated that what he wanted to do was he wanted to play the older Will Robinson in the time travel scene. And Stephen Hopkins, amongst others, felt that that would be too obvious of a thing. So they didn't want to do it. And he's been very vocal about that. Now, he did get a little small piece of catharsis in that he did get a brief moment in the Netflix adaptation of Lost in Space where he plays a character in a scene whose name is Dr. Z. Smith. Bill Mummy and Jonathan Harris were, were close friends. Like they, be, they became very close on set. So that, that, I feel like that was almost certainly a nod to that friendship, him doing that. Filming took place at Shepperton Studios, which was actually the same place they filmed Judge Dredd right before that. And actually, when the UK and other parts of the world got initial teaser trailers for Lost in Space, the musical cues that were played over the trailer were actually taken from Judge Dredd. <clears throat> Not in any way, shape, or form were those the same, but I digress. Um, filming began on March 3rd of 1997. Stephen Hopkins was very, very rigid with his storyboarding and really did not want to allow too many ch changes to scenes because the sheer amount of visual effects scenes they had to film. They had to film over 700 special visual effects. That is costly, and he did not want to have to... I, I don't want to say he didn't want to have to spend the money. The money wasn't there for him to spend to redo those. So... Another issue they had with filming on top of that was that filming on the sets, there was background noise that was getting picked up by the cameras and by the microphones. Because of that, most of the actors had to loop their dialogue later on, which that causes problems because it's often difficult. Like, you can see somebody give a line in a play and then go see that same play the next day and they'll have tweaked that line. If it doesn't quite sync up, it's not going to match too well. And Hopkins was very, very disapproving of that. He really didn't like that, but he had no choice. Uh, also, again, due to the filming schedule for Friends for Matt LeBlanc, it really threw their filming schedule into chaos at times. I mean, a lot of sets ended up not being finished that he had to be in scenes for. And because of that, like if you have wider exterior shots, they would use blue screen backgrounds so that they could digitally add in background shots later on. And if there were closer up ones where it was actually finished, they would make them closer than they were originally going to be in order to hide things that were not finished. Before the filming had begun, the script ended up getting rewritten a few different times because while they wanted to take it in a darker and more serious tone in some ways, they still wanted to keep this film family-friendly without being too silly. 
So a couple of minor rewrites here and there were necessary. Um, they had problems with the time travel scenes that they wanted to film because they would have been extremely extensive. And sadly, they would have been too expensive on that case. So while they did film a few scenes that would have taken place in these alternate future parts, including a, a scene where the two daughters and the mother go through one time loop and find the adult form of the little dragon monkey thing that Penny Robinson has called Blop, which that was built and designed by Jim Henson's Creature Studios. Ultimately, they were cut and they were left on the editing room floor. Now, if you have the Blu-ray release, not the DVD, but the Blu-ray release of the film, you can see a couple of these. And if you were like myself and ever read the novelization of the film, of course the scenes are in that because most of the time novelizations of the books are based on initial screenplays. So they're going to have little scenes here and there that you're not going to see in the movies themselves. Now, as far as all the special effects they did, Industrial Lights and Magic was contracted to do the special effects, but Industrial Lights and Magic is based out of the United States, not out of the UK, where most of this was filmed. That would come into play. Uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop did all the practical effects, like the set pieces, the robots, again, the adult blob that I mentioned. They had hoped that this film was going to launch a franchise, a massive multimedia franchise. They were going to have live action and cartoon TV series, books, novels. They, they had a lot of high hopes for this. And that's one of the reasons why they signed these deals with Industrial Lights and Magic and whatnot, because they sold them on the, on the idea that this was going to happen. You know, over 10 different companies in total in the UK helped out with the visual effects. You know, they specialized in various areas, including like Semi-Site, Digital Film London, oh, Electric Image, The Film Factory, Real Films. The miniature effects. Now, okay, there aren't, there's not a ton of miniature effects in this film, but miniature effects included scenes where like the ship was crash landing or when the ship launched. Uh, those were filmed by, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble reading my own handwriting. Magic Camera Company. I'm sorry. Folks, I take some notes for these episodes. They're not super extensive, but little things that my squirrel brain is going to forget here and there, I have to write them down so that I won't. So again, the miniature effects were photographed by Magic Camera Company. And that they also helped out with some of the visual effects, having some experience on that. Uh, Avid Illusion did the CGI rendering for the characters when they're themselves going in. Like, there's a scene in the beginning where Major West is in a little ship that's flying around and he's fighting in a, a little starship, things like that. And they actually use like the bullet time effects. When I say bullet time effects, I'm talking about like when the, in the Matrix when Neo dodges a bullet, or in Blade when Blade shoots at Deacon Frost and Deacon Frost slowly moves out of the way. Unfortunately, some of these effects don't really hold up in time. And a lot of that's because a lot of the companies that were working together for this, they had never done this big of a film on this big of a scale before. And because of that, and because of some lack of communication here and there, what you don't notice as a child, you notice as an adult. A lot of the animation is inconsistent. Uh, there are some scenes where it looks jaw-droppingly good. And other scenes where it, it frankly looks like it came out of Reboot, an old Canadian TV series from the 90s. 
Um, it a lot of that comes down to the fact that you know they were pressed for time and they were financially limited. If a sequence that was filmed was less than stellar or wasn't quite to Stephen Hopkins' liking, they couldn't go back and tweak it. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the money. As such, you know, certain scenes just don't hold up as well as others. Like the alien ship and the Proteus, they don't hold up quite as good as, say, the Jupiter 2 when it's going through a planet or when it's going near the sun, things like that. The Jupiter 2, folks, is what the pl- the ship is called. I'm sorry. The robots. Like I said earlier, the robots were designed by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. These things weighed two tons. And because of the programming and because of the delicate nature of the equipment and plus the cost, I believe the big blue robot that everybody sees was nearly $10 million to get it all able to move and light up and everything. The actors were instructed to stay away from them at all times to avoid any kind of damage if they were not programmed correctly. Blop, the little, again, little monkey dragon creature, he was actually going to be a puppet, and the Jim Henson uh, Creature Shop actually designed a puppet for this role. However, it just, it didn't work well when it came to practice, like moving around with the actors and scenes, especially in things that had to move quickly or climb up or down walls or whatnot. And because of that, they ended up replacing it with CGI. They replaced it with CGI when they only had about three or four weeks left of production to do. So they were cutting it close on that. You know, they still use some of the puppet. Like if you see close-up shots where you see it from behind or like just a hand or something, it's the puppet. But most of it is with CGI. And the CGI on Blop and especially the CGI on the mutated Dr. Smith at the end of the movie, they they don't hold up in any way, shape, or form. I mean, 10 years before this film came out, when Aliens came out, the Alien Queen was a was a puppet. It was a, it was practically built, and it looks phenomenal even now, over thirty years later. There's no reason they couldn't have done the same thing with Doctor Smith in this scene. I just I don't feel like because of everything else they did and because of their tri- their schedule, they just they ran out of the money. Honestly, the best thing that holds up to me as far as visual effects in this movie are the miniature effects. They, they did those extremely, extremely well. Last thing I'm going to touch on from production in this is the music. Um, the soundtrack that they came out with had a bunch of contemporary, like, electric pop, hip-hop kind of stuff. It, it, not my favorite kind of thing. The score was written by Bruce Broughton. He was brought in with three weeks left total in post-production to score this movie. He has gone on record saying that, you know, he did this movie, he did the score on instinct. He chose to ignore completely the original series score, which was actually penned by John Williams because it was a different film. That film and the TV series had such differences in tone and everything. He really didn't want to go with that. And I mean, he didn't even check with the director on this or that. There are musical cues that work so well with this movie and he actually the music holds up extremely well today he wrote the music in such a way that the music itself is almost like another character in the film it does a great job of setting tone the cues do a good job of getting you to understand okay this is sad okay this is scary this is big energy kind of thing it's it to me that absolutely holds up tremendously well now 
Oh, man. When this movie came out, it was... Like I said earlier, it was not well-received. And when I say that, I mean it was panned to hell and back. It's been called everything from dumb and unimaginative, dim-witted, a couple of scenes that might spark your adrenaline, but by and large, it just it doesn't avoid this movie is basically what the critics were saying, you know. They felt that while some of the, the practical effects and the performance, especially of Gary Oldman, were very well received, visually it's an extremely uneven film, and from a tonal perspective, they felt the story just landed flat. Uh, when it opened in theaters, because of the extensive, extensive marketing campaign for this movie, it opened with a $20 million weekend, and it opened at number one. Now, that doesn't seem like it's too out of this world for something like that. No pun intended there. You know, a movie that's been extremely hyped, opening at number one. Folks, this movie knocked Titanic out of first place. After 15 weeks straight. Because of this, the movie was nicknamed The Iceberg. You know, a sequel had been bounced around between Akiva Goldsman and Stephen Hopkins. But the low return, as well as the really horrible reviews, and when I say low return, I mean it was made on about an $80 million budget and made $136 million back. When you take into consideration marketing and everything else, it flopped. It wasn't a bomb exactly, but it was a flop. The sequel, therefore, was just deemed just unnecessary. However, the movie was well-received enough that it was nominated for six different Saturn Awards, including Gary Oldman getting a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Another award that this movie was nominated for, it was nominated for Worst Remake or Sequel by the Golden Raspberry Awards. It lost to a three-way tie. The Avengers, which is based on a British television show, not Marvel's Avengers. Psycho, which was remade with Vince Vaughn and is damn near scene for scene. And the 1998 Godzilla movie, which is another movie that I have a tremendous soft spot for. It's not Godzilla. That has been cleared up numerous times. But I love that damn movie. You know, this the, t the original series had a very, very diehard fan base. A shockingly loyal fan base. And they, by and large, do not like the movie. They were ecstatic, for example, when they would see cameos from original actors. But when they were reduced to one or two line cameos, or in the case of June Lockhart, really being made a joke, they didn't like that. They were ecstatic to see the original ship, only for the original ship to blow apart and reveal the new ship. And it's like, oh, well, I guess the old ship was just a housing unit for it. They, they didn't care for that. Like I said, a sequel was tossed around, which would have involved the planet successfully, the planet, I am so sorry, the family successfully making it to Alpha Prime. However, they would have been beaten there by the mutants and the global sedition, which were completely in control. And they would, they would have involved some little spy work and whatnot. Uh, there's some pretty cool deleted scenes. Like I said, there, you see the deleted scene with the grown up blop and, the only thing that I don't like about that is that because I've read the novel, what you see on screen does not quite match what you read. 
But that's okay. I mean, it, it happens. The character of Penny, played by Lacey Chabert, she's got this little watch that she's able to record little videos of herself for her own, like, digital diary kind of thing. This predates vlogs, vlogs, if you want, and Instagram by well over a decade. I mean, she's got face filters on herself. I get it. I almost feel I don't want to say it predicted it, but I'm not going to say that somebody didn't see that and be like, you know what? I think we could do that right on down to Apple watches being able to take little videos and things like that. You know, again, I said earlier that I think that Jared Harris was cast because he did bear a resemblance to John Hurt. William Hurt, I'm sorry. John Hurt's a very different actor. John Hurt was one of the doctors. I am I am not with it right now. I'm sorry. Uh, the pro I think that between not quite sounding how they wanted him to and just not carrying himself right, that's what, probably why they chose to dub him. Uh, I still don't think they should have done that. And Harris has actually gone on record to say that he pretty much disowns the film because he had less than half a role. If you take away his voice, like he was only physically there and he's like how anybody could see that and not realize that that's not me talking is beyond me. Uh, Gary Oldman got to use a few of Dr. Smith's icon iconic lines like, Oh, the pain, the pain of it all and things like that. I think honestly that between the script, budget issues, filming delays and jumping back and forth, everything, there was a lot of things that went into making this movie just inconsistent, which it's a shame because, like I said earlier on, I have a love-hate relationship with this movie in that for the longest time, I hated this movie. And I hated this movie for a purely selfish reason. I was nine years old when this film came out. And I bore more than a passing resemblance to Jack Johnson, the little boy who played Will Robinson. To the point that my mother and myself would have random people in stores, at my brother's football games, coming up to us and being like, oh my God, he looks like the kid from Lost in Space. I got so tired of hearing that, that while I enjoyed the book, I can honestly say I had did not start to really appreciate the film until I was about 15 or 16 years old. He and I look nothing alike nowadays, but that's just, like I said, it's purely a selfish reason, but I'm entitled to that. My opinion on it has since softened. I do enjoy this film. I watch it periodically. I bought it on DVD used several years ago and was quite disturbed to discover that the DVD did not work. So I ended up buying it on Blu-ray. So I actually have it on both Blu-ray and VHS, but the VHS, or VHS, DVD, but the DVD doesn't work too well. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. It is a good movie. It visually, like I said, there are some issues here and there, but I do enjoy it. Um, the franchise itself lay dormant for almost 20 years to the day, actually, because the Netflix series was launched in 2018. And what's really funny about the Netflix season is that the Netflix show is thought to be too dark while 
most reviewers now consider the original movie, the 1998 movie, to be too campy compared to it. It's like, you guys can't make up your minds. <laughs> Here nor there, I have not seen much of the Netflix series, although from what I understand, it is similar to the movie. But, I don't know. That's pretty much all I got to say about this. Uh, again, I like the movie quite a bit nowadays. If you ever get a chance, by all means, give it a shot. Next week, I will be talking about the James Cronenberg movie, The Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum. That movie gave me nightmares as a child. I look forward to reading into it. I look forward to getting to talk about it. Hopefully you will too. I hope you have enjoyed listening to me ramble on about Lost in Space. I greatly enjoy doing this show. Uh, honestly, I, I've i been accused of liking to hear the way I talk. I'm not going to confirm that, but I'm also not going to deny that. So again, next week, The Fly. Until then, I am Kid Kong, and I will see you at the movies.